It was a word that was used that meant good news. It was actually originally not a word uh, which was associated with the message of Jesus. That's hard to understand now, really, isn't it? We just use the word gospel all the time to relate to the message of Jesus. It was actually originally used, apparently, um, to speak about the good news about becoming part of the Roman Empire. (laughs) It was gospel that you became part of the Roman Empire. So when your little nation was, um, was taken over by the Roman hordes, Uh, And that was it. You were now uh, taxed as a country and some would argue that stability and order and democracy came to your land and others would say all of the money went back to Rome. Whichever it was, whatever the perspective, the message that was used was that this is good news. This is gospel. You've now come under the rule of Rome. Uh, And the church, when they were trying to explain the message of Jesus... They quickly understood that there is a greater belonging. And so the word gospel became part of the language of the church. In fact, Mark, who wrote this account, it's the first of the accounts of Jesus. We think it was probably written around about 30 years after Jesus, something like that, 20 to 30 years, certainly in the early stage of Jesus, uh, the growth of the church after Jesus had died, been buried, rose again, returned to heaven. We see this, uh, this book was written. And Mark opens it up with the first words in the book contain the message uh, of the good news. It says this, the beginning of the good news or gospel, the word that used there, beginning of the good news about Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. So he's saying, I want you to know really clearly up front what I'm writing about. I'm writing about the good news, which is Jesus, the one who was promised, and he's no less than the Son of God. I think some of you will have heard me say this before, but I think it's really a helpful way of thinking about it. You very often, when you're reading a novel, you get to the end And then you finally understand what it's all about when all of the pieces drop into place. Mark doesn't write like like that at all. He writes really clearly. He says, right off the bat, I want you to understand that everything that I'm writing about is about Jesus, who was God in the world. Let's be really clear about it. And then we read all sorts of accounts, and last week's account about Jesus. Am I drifting in and out? No, I'm all right. Okay, my ears, there you go. Last week we were looking, uh, Matt took us through the earlier part of the chapter 4 that we're looking at this afternoon, and we talked, looked about this story, this parable, about a farmer who goes out and he casts seed on ground. Uh, I was really privileged to be able to go and spend a little bit of time in Israel and seeing uh, a replica, a kind of a rebuilt Uh, Galilean village. Uh, And the fields that we kind of think about fields, and I don't know about you, but fields are really very clearly marked with maybe ditches at the edge and big hedges and roads now bounding the fields. So you know what is field. It seems to me that what was a field wasn't anywhere near as, as orderly 
as we see today. The field was more like a patch of ground where some of the ground has been prepared. And so we find in the story that the sower casts out this seed and it falls into different places. Onto the path where everybody's trodden. Onto rocky ground, onto shallow ground, onto ground with weeds. And the only ground which produces what the Bible describes as fruit, or we could say a harvest, from one seed you get lots and lots and lots more seeds. So you sacrifice some to grow more seed. We find that it's only the good ground where the seed has been uh, successfully sown. Jesus then takes his disciples and having told that story to people, probably people a lot like us, just gathering, listening to Jesus, he tells them the story and then he walks away. That's interesting, isn't it? That's strange. He walks away and he says, nothing. Then the disciples come to him and they say, help us to understand what you've been talking about. Matt took us through this last week. And he explains what it is all about. He explains to the disciples this story. Verse 20 of Mark chapter 4, he says, Others, like seeds sown on good soil, hear the word, accept it, and produce a crop, some 30, some 60, some a hundred times what is sown. What Jesus is explaining to the disciples, which he didn't explain to everybody else, is that the seed being sown is a picture of receiving the word of Jesus. Some people don't even hear it, just falls on the path and it's gone. But the only, if you like, successful seed is seed that lands in good ground and produces a fruit, and out of that fruit, good things come. That's the fruit, that's success. So what's success in this story? It's hearing the word of Jesus and responding to it in a way which is fruitful. Simple as that. That's a really interesting story, isn't it? And we could go away and we, we could say, well, that's helpful. But I want you to just pause a minute because I think there is a real crisis in that story. Well, there's lots of crises. <laughs> but the one that I want to draw attention to is this. Jesus tells the disciples what it means and he doesn't tell the people what it means. That's a crisis in my mind because if it is that big, that important, that significant, why doesn't Jesus tell the people who heard it? Verse 21 starts to make sense. If we could have that up on the screen, that'd be great. Verse 21 starts to make sense of a huge, significant turning point in the message of God to the world. Verse 21, 
He said to them, do you bring in a lamp to put it under a bowl or a bed? Instead, don't you put it on its stand? For whatever is hidden is meant to be disclosed, and whatever is concealed is meant to be brought out into the open. If anyone has ears to hear, let them hear. The turning point, this is massive. The turning point that is happening as a result of what Jesus is saying is He has chosen this moment, along with lots of others, to say, I might speak to the people and they might not, I might not tell them the whole story for a reason. And the reason is because you who have heard this story, you are to now become light. You're the ones who are to become light. You're the ones who are now to disclose what has up to now kind of been hidden. That's what Jesus has done, isn't it? He's kind of hidden the meaning. He's given it to some, and now He's saying, now you become the light. What Jesus does at this moment in time is He creates this kind of turning point and a foundation for a massively significant idea for the rest of the New Testament. And it's this, that we are to become the light in the world. We are to become light in the world. I just want to think about that this afternoon for a few minutes. This might be tough. We're going we're gonna to look, it's really hit me today actually, some stuff that I've been reading. Some, as I've been kind of preparing and thinking, being light in the world. This massive turning point and a message which becomes foundation for the rest of the story of God in the world, in the New Testament, that the disciples and, and those who believe in Jesus become light. The problem that we have, I think, and why it's difficult to relate, is that the way that Jesus describes light and the way that Jesus describes His Word is to do with a farmer who's walking around a field with a basket under his arm and he's throwing seed out onto the ground. That, as a picture, as an image, if you haven't spent any real time reading the Bible, if you haven't kind of been immersed in the stories of the Bible for years and years and years, quite frankly, the story of a farmer walking around a field throwing seed out into the ground is entirely irrelevant to the world that we now live in. It is an old, irrelevant story. And so when we talk about the idea of seed and the idea of seed landing in different places and, and, and all of that, how can we possibly become light? The first thing we have to question, therefore, is does the world need light? If we're to be light, 
does the world need light? And how do we take this idea, which is couched in 2,000-year-old pictures, how do we take this idea and how do we make it something for today? This is where it gets tough. Why is this relevant? I read a, a, we publish our little blogs and the, the short intros to the sermons, series, and all of that kind of thing on a platform called Medium, medium.com. I signed up to Medium, get regular updates. Some of you might have got this update. It's an incredibly moving story from a guy who's writing about the reality of his current lived experience. He's a 20-something American who's living in London. I often get texts at 9 a.m. That scares me. I live in London now, and depending on the time zone, that's around 3 a.m. in the U.S. While I soberly eat some Greek yogurt, maybe a banana, my phone vibrates on the table. Michael, I want to bleep kill myself. It could be anyone. My heart starts pounding in my chest. I hesitate before opening it. They'll see I've read it and, I expect, a and expect a response. Are you okay, I type. Then I delete that text letter by letter. Ha, 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 me too, dude. I press send. I take a bite of yogurt. One day I'll send that message to a corpse. I, I found that just heart-rending, tragic. And some, in fact, he writes, if you're over the age of 35, you are probably quite disturbed by this. But he then says, but if you are my age, you will probably relate to it. You'll probably relate to it. Because the world that we live in today is increasingly filled with a sense of emptiness and hopelessness. The world that we live in today is filled with a sense of blackness. And where do I turn? And what is there in life? Where do I go? The things that our parents, who now includes me, <laughs> the things that our parents strove after, the things that they chased after, haven't satisfied. In fact, it's a bit like, like sand. You pick up a handful of sand. The tighter you try to hold on to that sand, the more it runs through your fingers. You can't hold on to it. It just disappears and you're left with nothing. And we live in a world, certainly in the Western world, where more and more people are looking at the things that we're trying to hold on to, and they are feeling it is like sand slipping through my fingers. And there is an increasing sense of hopelessness, emptiness, nothingness. And the gospel has to relate to that world. It has to speak into that world. It has to be light in that world. And yes, absolutely, 
The gospel is described by Jesus as seeds that fall in different places, and some do grow briefly, but only seed in one place grows up and flourishes. The seed grows in different places, and most of it doesn't satisfy, and that is the story. But somehow we've got to take that, and we've got to say, this means something for today. This speaks into that sense of hopelessness. In his article, he was really helpfully helpful in describing that this sense of desperation is not a new phenomenon. He, he talks about the idea that um, we might blame it, I don't know, on Trump or social media or, well, you'll hear me repeatedly blaming it on social media. We might blame it on all of that kind of thing. But he recounts past histories. Just after the Great War, there was a profound sense of desperation, hopelessness. T.S. Eliot wrote the poem, The Hollow Man, an expression of the emptiness of our experience. A hundred years or so earlier than that, there was another period of historical time where there was the same sense of emptiness and hopelessness. Do you know what the, I'll do an ash, do you know what the scientists, in inverted commas, do you know what the scientists dis described that sense of hopelessness on? What the reason was? The newly invented railways. They were absolutely convinced that the vibrations of the newly invented railways were literally shattering our nerves. Isn't that fascinating? And yet at the same time, doesn't it point to something? That we can go back in time, we can go back in time, we can go back in time, and humanity goes through these cycles of again and again and again, emptiness, hopelessness, and desperation. When we are confronted with the reality of our frailty, with the reality of our meager existence, with the reality of the sense of that brief moment, and then what? Again and again we are confronted with it. And we are in a moment where it's almost as though society itself is deciding to respond to the darkness with that deep sense of a hopeless, depressive sense of worthlessness. I guess we could relate it a little bit to the way John describes the good news of Jesus. He uses the light idea. In John chapter 1 and verse 4, he says this, in Him, Jesus, was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, but the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. It's, it's this sense of bleakness and darkness and emptiness and hopelessness and it seems to me as though we almost go in these waves of how we respond to that darkness. We can fall, generations can fall into a kind of 
depressive sense of emptiness. You get an internet meme. It doesn't talk, it doesn't take very long for somebody to introduce some sort of black humor which talks about some sort of hopelessness or emptiness. I think my generation responded to the blackness in an alternative way of responding. The other way that we can respond to blackness is that we can party in the blackness. We can play, we can hope, we can, we can pretend that it isn't dark and fill our lives with all sorts of things and imagine that we're not in the dark, we're actually in the light, trying to create light with things. And the next generation is saying that is hopeless. You're just creating, you're just, you're just hiding from the reality. If you are in your 20s and you are relating to the idea of hopelessness and emptiness and darkness, let me tell you, in another 20-odd years, your children will be reverting and saying, don't be depressed, let's fill our lives with stuff. We go through cycles. That's where we are. And so when Jesus speaks about us being the light, it's relevant today because humanity is always the same and always needs this kind of light. The kind of light that is Jesus. The kind of light which breaks into the world. Have you ever thought that about Jesus? Mark says right off the bat, this is about Jesus, the good news about Him. He's the Son of God. He's the promised one, the Messiah. That means that Jesus is unlike any human being in existence, in history or to come. He hasn't been born from humanity in that sense. He is God who has broken in to this world. And He is able to bring a light into our darkness. He's eternal. He's the one who dies and lives. And so we get to this point where we realize in the de depths of darkness, in the depths of hopelessness, where can I look? Look around, where can I go? Go to my friends, they're in the same place. Because they're frail like me. Party with my friends. Fill my life with stuff like my friends. We're all in it together. And then we realize that there is a hope outside of us. And it's Jesus. That's the light that is being talked about. We need the light because we are eternally, no, eternally, we are forever as humanity in this world in the darkness. Now look at what Jesus says to those who believe and trust in Him. He is effectively by saying it to the disciples, he says it to us as well. He says, you are the light. Look at the way he describes it. What is the light? Jesus. 
Do we see that? Do we know it? Do we understand it? Well, if we know it and we understand it and it is the light, do we take that light and do we hide it? Do we put it in a, under a bowl or under a bed? That's literally the language that Jesus uses. He says, let's take this light. Imagine that we take light and we, this is a great thing, this light, and we say, let's use this light by putting a bowl over it. It just, it just doesn't work, does it? Let's use this light by putting it under the bed. I was watching a program a few weeks ago which was all about lights. Sad, isn't it? <laughs> There's a little excerpt where they were, they were trying to work out which was the most expensive and which is the cheapest of these table lamps. $9.99 from Argos. Uh, and then, are you ready? At the other end of the spectrum, uh, a light by a designer called Tom Dixon. Table lamp, 410 pound. Table lamp. Do you know why it didn't come top? They actually thought the 79.99 from Habitat or whatever it was, was, was more expensive than the Tom Dixon light. I actually thought the Tom Dixon light was really cool, but that's another thing. But let's take any one of those four lights and let's use it by putting it on our desk, then taking a box and putting the box over it. It loses all significance in a moment. As soon as you put that box over it, it is no longer a useful light, is it? That's what Jesus is saying. He's saying, you have seen the light, you disciples. You've seen the light because I've explained the meaning of what the sowing of the seed is like. This is good news. It's about receiving the Word, about receiving me. Now, having received it, are you going to take that great light and you're going to say, right, this is, this is great. I am now going to be silent about it. I'm not going to mention it. I'm going to hide it. Don't you take this and don't you shine it out. Folks, if you believe in Jesus, if your hope is in that light, our lives are to be lives that shine out that light. That's what we are called to be. We are to shine out that light. And in this world that we now live in, the world that we now live in, how do we shine that light in this world? I think we shine it in every situation that we are in. I think very often we, we've mixed... We, over the centuries, the church has, has lost its way at times with this. We've decided that shining the light is about making sure that we hide away and come to church. Now, quite honestly, you can't, you can't grow in your light if you hide away and don't come to church. <laughs> 
You're not going to grow, so there's the need for us to be together, to grow as light. But, but being in church is not shining light into the world. It's not. It's about every single day. It's about working out what does light therefore look like? What does, what does that kind of light look like? I think, I think to be perfectly honest, I think Paul makes it really clear in Galatians chapter 5 what light looks like in, in real kind of tangible terms, things that we can understand. He says, he says that light looks like fruit. <laughs> it's the same kind of language. It's the language of, of, of the wheat. It's the language of fruit. He says that light has a quality. I'm working on a project with some guys at the moment on light. I could bore you to death now about light. It's fantastic. Light is amazing. This is how thick I am. You know that kind of rainbow thing? That's the light spectrum. Richard of York gave battle in vain. Red, orange, yellow, no, green, down to violet. Right, right at one end of the spectrum is red light. Do you know what? There's, a no, there's light beyond that that you can't see. It's called infrared I thought infrared was some sort of magical kind of thing that it's connected to that end of the spectrum. And down the other end of the spectrum, you've got ultraviolet. Isn't that, do you know what? It's taken me years to work that out, but that's amazing. But what, what that little experience has made me see is that light that we know has a quality. Light is something. White light here we go, I can bore you, is a combination of all of those different spectrums of light. The red, all of that, right? Combine them all, you get white light. It has a quality. The quality of the light that we shine as believers in Jesus is summed up in Galatians chapter 5. And it reads like this, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, Peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness. That is gospel light. It's as simple as that. And at the same time, as profoundly complex as that. If we live like that, growing in every one of those qualities, we will shine the gospel light into this world. Let me just take one. Love. Let me say straight off the bat, there are billions of people who are more loving than me. There are. So it's just being loving gospel light. No. It isn't. Anybody can love. And it's a good thing that people do love. It's a great thing. In fact, people can be way more loving than me and not shine gospel light. But when the motivation to love is because of the love that I have received from Jesus, 
and I want to love because of that love, then that's gospel light. In fact, Jesus goes on to say precisely that when He opens up in verse 24. Consider what you hear. With the measure you use, it will be measured to you and even more. Whoever has will be given more. Whoever does not, even what they have, will be taken from them. It's coming to terms with what we give out is as a result of what we have received. I can show more joy. Do you know what joy looks like? Joy is a profoundly significant thing. Hope is a profoundly significant gospel theme in the world that we live in today. Listen to this in exactly the same article. Kevin Hines, one of only two people to ever survive jumping off the Golden Gate Bridge, waited at the railing for 40 minutes. He later recounted, if someone had smiled and said, are you okay? I would not have jumped. I just was unable to ask for help myself. Do you know what? Jesus has done more than say to you and me, are you okay? He's done that, but then He's made it okay. He's shown us the kind of love. He's displayed the kind of hope. He's displayed the kind of joy to us, which is so profound, so incredible, that when we see it, when it sinks in, gospel hope, gospel love, gospel joy, gospel peace, gospel patience, gospel forbearance, gospel kindness, all of those fruits, all of those things, when they are shown to me, we are to respond by saying, I want to shine that out. I want, to sh- I want to spend the next few years, I guess, working out with us. How do we shine that kind of hope in this world? What does that hope mean tomorrow when I'm in the office? What does that hope mean when I'm in college or university tomorrow? What does it mean when I'm down shopping with my friends tomorrow, when I'm having a conversation in the road tomorrow? Does my kind of hope in Jesus mean that I am not knocked off course in the way that my friends are? Does that mean that suddenly when you become a believer in Jesus, that all of this stuff goes away? Not at all. Not at all. But it looks something like this, that in the middle of the worst of challenges, when we feel as though we are crushed down to the bottom, as though we have got absolutely nothing left, and we have tears running down our faces because we cannot take any more, we feel, we are able to say, but there is still something more. That's gospel hope. When I am crushed, there is a smile behind my tears, not some sort of glib, empty, clown-like smile, but a deep sense of, do you know what? It could get worse than this. 
it might actually, this situation might finish me off, but I still have hope in Jesus. That kind of hope, that kind of reality is so remarkably different, so tremendously different than the world that we currently live in. Because there is one generation that is dancing in the dark and there's one generation that is weeping in the dark. And the only solution for both of those is Jesus who can speak into every situation and the pain may not go away. But when I am finally finished off, I have a hope in Jesus. That's light in the darkness. Do you know what? It's, I think some of the things that we've been exposing this afternoon, you might think, I don't want to come to church and hear that, that kind of stuff. I don't want to think about that kind of hard stuff. Unless we are reorientating our lives so that we realize that the gospel is speaking into those hard situations, we are not making the gospel relevant for the world that we live in today. We're not. We're making the gospel some sort of frilly kind of fluffy stuff that we do separate. And then I go off and then I do my life. And I want to ask, how does the gospel change the way that I the way that I enter into that deal tomorrow, or the way that I face that absolute mountain of marking, or the, the complete, absolute, unacceptable behavior of the person who's my boss. How do I cope with that? Is my identity rooted in the success of that deal, successfully getting through that marking, not being bullied by my supervisor, is my identity in success over those, or is it somewhere else? That is gospel hope. Do you know what? I think we can end up crushed. I don't think being a Christian and being bullied in work means that somehow you don't end up having to give up, crushed into the ground. It's not as though the gospel brings this kind of bubble that protects us from everything. But what it does do is it gives us hope that we are able to say, as we are called to do, when somebody asks you, why is there hope in you? We are able to give a reason why there is hope in us. That's light. Do you know what? This is the best news for this world today. Living hope like that. Just in case we think, that we can build that up ourselves. The story carries on with the next little picture. Look at verse 26. This is what the kingdom of God is like. A man scatters seed on the ground night and day, whether he sleeps or gets up, the seed sprouts and grows, though he does not know how. All by itself, the soil produces grain. First the stalk, then the head, then the full kernel in the head. As soon as the grain is ripe, he puts the sickle to it because the harvest has come. You might be thinking, how can I, how can I possibly, possibly learn to live gospel life, hope like that? How can I possibly learn to shine that kind of life? The growing of that kind of fruit 
according to the ancient world, was the miracle of sowing seeds and then it happening. They didn't know how it happened. (laughs) What we know is that we can't do it. We can't grow that kind of fruit by ourselves. And so our response is to say quite simply, as simple as this, Father in heaven, I am completely unable to grow any of the fruit of the Spirit in my life. I cannot do it. The ground that the seed has fallen into, I am unable to prepare, I am unable to sustain, and so I pray that you will make my heart the kind of soil which grows gospel fruit. I can't do it, but you can. That is the kind of prayer that can be life-transforming. If we all got up committed to that every day, Lord, I can't grow this kind of fruit in my life. I can't learn to love in that way. So I need you to change me so that I can. I cannot have that kind of peace because quite honestly, I am ripped to bits by my situation in work. So will you give me that kind of peace so that when I sit down with my work colleague and we are trying to get through the day, I am able to give some kind of hope. I'm not talking about jumping in with some sort of message from the Bible and saying, I'm living with a deeper hope, so I'm not crushed by this. If we could do that, if we could make that our goal, I'll tell you now, we will be gospel-transformed people.